it's always a little awkward uh, following up the, the baby because when the baby comes, everyone's like, oh my gosh. And then when the preacher comes up, it's like him again, you know. No, good morning. Also, uh, you know, the youth group, Catapult, are you in here? What's up? If we could take our Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. You know, if you're joining us for the first time, I really want to welcome you. Our, our church, we're currently in a series in the book of 1 John called Blessed Assurance, where we're trying to gain certainty of what Christians can believe in. Uh, and, you know, if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, uh, what, we've, what we've really been learning uh, from Pastor Steve is what Christians ought to do, what our calling is, namely, that's to love, to love God, of course, but also to love others, not just in a natural way, but in, in a supernatural way, a, a love that comes from God. But if what we've been learning the past few weeks is what Christians should love, namely others, this morning we're actually going to go in the exact reversal and talk about what Christians should not love. Now, right off the bat, uh, that might feel a little bit counterintuitive for us. Because when we think about the Christian, we're always talking about love, aren't we? Oh, Christians should love God. Oh, Christians should love others and love, love, love. And so for us to talk about something we should not love almost feels like a kind of like an imbalancing statement, right? It kind of throws us off a little bit. But logically, just from the get-go, we, we must believe and kind of accept that if we truly love something, or someone logically, consequently, subsequently, it actually kind of invites no love for something else, right? So if you love life, if you love the concept of life, you will subsequently not love the concept of murder. Uh, If you love the concept of freedom, you will subsequently not love the concept of slavery, If you love the Los Angeles Dodgers, you currently do not love the Houston Astros, but we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, And so for the Christian, because we've already been invited into this amazing calling to love God and love other uh, people, it also invites us, and John does, he kind of invites us as well, to not love something, and here it is, namely, the world. Here's how how John puts it, if you look with me in uh, chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse uh, 15. John writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father or their love for God is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God abides Forever. And so, you know, when we kind of boil down this passage to its essence, John is simply commanding believers, don't love the world. When he says uh, love, uh, when we kind of press down into the translation, uh, what he actually means is uh, don't have high esteem. Don't find such satisfaction in. You know, don't indulge in so much. Don't take such pleasure uh, in the world. Now, uh, what exactly is the world, though? Right? Uh, and, you know, one thing that's difficult is the, the world, uh, or the Greek word cosmos, it, it has various senses, uh, nuances in how it can be applied and understood. Uh, on the one hand, the world, or cosmos, uh, it could be a translation for, for earth, uh, geographical, physical. Uh, another sense of cosmos is human beings, 
right? It's, it's not the earth, but it's the very people who dwell in and dwell on uh, the earth. Now, these two senses, when we apply it to the context, it doesn't seem to fit the context, right? Because after all, God created the earth and he saw that it was good. God also commands us to love our neighbors, which are people. So there must be a different sense or a nuanced understanding of cosmos uh, that John is pushing for, and, and there is. The idea that John is pushing for when he uses the word world is fallen value systems. Fallen value systems. Uh, it's any values or, or system of thinking, an order of thinking, behaving, uh, buying into, uh, living out, carrying out anything and all that is either in opposition of God uh, or uh, autonomous, excludes God. So any type of like thinking, any type of value system that says, no, no, I don't want anything to do with God. I, I want to be on my own, this prideful independence, or, uh, you know, like I, I, I can do my own thing. I want God out of the picture. So any kind of value system uh, that that's, uh, tries to get God out of, the, out of the picture, that's the kind of fallen value system and order and system of thinking and living that John is pushing for. And so what John is saying is, hey, don't, Indulge in this fallen value system that expose, uh, opposes and excludes God. Now, right off the bat, I don't know if there's a single person here uh, who would disagree with that. Because, for example, if there's a non-Christian here, and I'm so glad you're here, even the non-Christian in this room is like, yeah, like that makes sense. If you're a Christian and you love God, you probably shouldn't find pleasure and indulge in that which opposes God, right? So it, logically, it's easy to connect the dots. And even for us, some of us who kind of grew up in the church, uh, we agree with this, right? That's why we, you hear certain vernacular in the church, right? You hear things like, uh, oh, don't be, don't be a worldly Christian, right? We think, uh, oh, that, that Christian is so worldly. And so when John commands do not indulge in the world, this fallen value system. There is hardly anyone, if anyone at all, uh, who's going to have a hard time connecting the dots and, and, and finding this agreeable. But, but I wonder if where we might have a harder time uh, connecting the dots is not whether the Christian should love the world, but maybe uh, what the world exactly looks like and manifests itself to be. You see, um, I, I think often when Christians talk about not loving the world, we, we describe this fallen value system as if it's something like out there, right? As, as if it takes shape primarily in various uh, cultural forms or subcultural forms. And as long as we don't participate in certain cultural forms, then, then we're not a part of the world. We don't love the world. And so often when we talk about loving the world, it's just something kind of out there and, and not something closer here a buying into of, of corruption and corrosion in terms of our attitude before God. Like, here's what I mean. Like, if you kind of talk to a Christian, you ask them, like, describe to me a worldly Christian, and you kind of keep pushing that question. The average person in the church, they will actually start describing these cultural forms and subcultural forms, right? So, for example, uh, for some of us, uh, when I said uh, the world, don't love the world, Here's where our mind immediately went to. Here's what you think about 
uh, the cultural form you think about when you think about the world. Some of us, we, not all of us, but some of us, we think about like the nightclub scene, right? It's, it's like dark, it's litted, not, not like this room, okay? But it's dark and it's, well, it's not very well lit and there's all this loud music and there's these people like kind of dancing around and having a good time and a guy kind of whispering into a girl's ear without invading her private space too much. And there's like this back room. And behind the back room, there are these guys kind of sitting in a circle and, uh, you know, they have a cigar and drink and they're playing these cards. So for some of us, not all of us, when we think about the world, that's what we think about. And so the idea of a Christian participating in those things For some of us, when we think about a Christian actually doing those things, we're like, oh my goodness, come Lord Jesus. The world is coming to an end, right? Others of us, uh, we we don't think about the world in terms of the nightclub scene. What we think about is the cultural form of success and wealth. Like your mind, you think about that person in the really nice suit, who's very entrepreneurial, who does crazy business deals and reels in a lot of money. And so for you, If there's a Christian who's very successful, right, we think he's so ambitious as if that's that's the problem, right? He's so ambitious doing so many money deals. Boy, he he sure must like like his lifestyle. Or we think about the person who's really passionate about his or her career and we think, oh, no balance. I feel bad for their children. And so we actually think about uh, like success, cultural uh, forms, Others of us, when we think about the world, the, the, the cultural form or subculture form that we uh, think about is the culture of fashion, vacationing, uh, or entertainment, right? That's why some of us, uh, we actually go, oh my gosh, that Christian couple, they're vacationing again? They're traveling to Europe again? How much money is that? I, I, I sure hope they're tithing. Oh boy. Or some of us, right, we, we think about a Christian who, who has this purse. And we go, that Louis must be a big deal. Or that, that Jimmy guy, I don't know who this Tory is, but, you know, Miss Birch, she must be a big deal. Sure hope they're tithing. Or, or others of us, we think about a certain Christian, we're like, how do they watch all those TV shows? They just know all the TV shows. Okay, I mean, if, if, if they're that kind of a Christian, if they're into those things... And so what we start doing is we start kind of distancing ourselves from the conversation because we think that the world is just a corruption of subculture, something external. Now, now, to be sure, that very well may be the case because all cultural forms, uh, they find expression from values underneath. However, I, I think we have to be careful now to not simply uh, point fingers at an external cultural form as if it's something out there and not our own uh, buy-in and belief of values that have been corrupted, values of corrosion that we've actually bought into in here, in our hearts, which is much more closer, but it's very subtle, almost sinister. We can't really tell, it's sneaky. You know how I know this and why I think this? See, I, I, I so appreciate um, how John, clearly he was a wise man. Because though he could have simply said, don't love the world and moved on, he actually uh, starts getting a little bit descriptive of what precisely is in the world. Because the devil is in the details, right? 
And so there's three things that John lists in terms of how a system of fallen values kind of reveal itself to be, how uh, exclusion of God and autonomy, how, how it kind of shows itself. He lists three things that we're going to talk about. The first one is uh, the desires of the flesh. The second one is the desire of the eyes. And the third one is the pride of life. And uh, as we unpack these things, uh, we might discover that maybe our love for the world is much more in here, even if our own subcultures seems spiritual and clean cut and tidy and family oriented. So let's start with uh, the desire of the flesh. Uh, The desire of the flesh, for those of us taking notes, um, or the lust of the flesh, it really means to be driven by our physical appetites, to be driven by or to be controlled by our physical appetites, which uh, whether it's our palate, it could be physical uh, or sensual or sexual, but it's really to be controlled in a way where what we're really after is just simply just satisfying our body. Now, that's the problem with sexual immorality, right? Because sexual immorality, it elevates uh, like sexual pleasure to godlike status, as if that's simply what our bodies exist for just to feel sexual pleasure. But the problem with that is it excludes God. It opposes God. That's why it's worldly. That's why uh, sexual immorality is wrong. That's why it's sinful. But if we're going to talk about sexual immorality in those terms, you know what else is kind of worldly? You know what else is kind of the desire of the flesh? Gluttony. Excess food. Now, that's something we don't talk about often in the church. Now, uh, everyone's nervous. Uh, uh, confession time. Food is good. If you've never had it, it's okay. Like, it's, I really, you should eat it. Uh, I love food. I'm not one of those um, food is only fuel guys. I'm big into flavor. Uh, I, I, you know, steak. I'm, to- just, I'm, I'm totally there. Love food. And I think it's okay to, so if you're a foodie, rock on, Okay. Um, but, but I'm just saying, actually, in fact, um, you know, the, the Bible, uh, it, it talks about, you know, so many redemptive moments, historical moments, food is in the picture. In the Bible, food is a major theme in the Bible, right? Uh, we absolutely can glorify God whether we eat or drink, right? Um, but if we're honest, sometimes aren't our lives controlled by food maybe a little bit more than it should be? Because, you know, like Paul, he, he says things like, you know, I beat my body into submission. I don't let anything control me. Like there are times when I go, um, did I just really reorient my entire schedule for wings again <laughs> this week? <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I didn't share this for service because my wife was here. But uh, I, I, one time, <laughs> and the first one's recorded, I think. So uh, one time I, I picked up my kids from school and, and I just, I went through drive through at McDonald's, and I, I parked in the parking lot, and I ate by myself while the kids were in the back. And uh, I'm not going to give them McDonald's. I'm not a bad dad. You know, that's so unhealthy. Don't look at all this judgment. Wow. I'm going to sacrifice my own body. No, no, but really, and, and uh, sometimes like, uh, oh, what are we having for dinner? Fish. Oh, fish. Like, I hate fish. What I'm really craving is... And uh, when I get really hungry, I get angry. That's why we have the term hangry, because it combines anger and hunger, 
right? When I get hangry, even my kids are like, Dad, stop acting like a child, right? Uh, And and, uh, it's just this weird relationship where I just wonder sometimes if I allow my body to be too controlled by excess food. And I know some of us were like, but you're like small, You're, you're skinny. It's the skinny dudes that can pound food, right? No, no, I'm, I'm not saying uh, you can't have, uh, you can't crave food. I'm not saying you can't, enjoy, no, we, we should enjoy food to the glory of God. In fact, today's the rainy day, so you should have pho. You know, I'm, I'm just, you know, like, <laughs> pho sales are going to go up today, right? Uh, no, it's fine, but, but I'm just saying, are, are we too controlled by food? Is our relationship in terms of our body and food, is God's glory even in the picture? Like, do we, do we eat to live or are we just living to eat? Because there's a huge difference. You know, let me ask you this. When you think about Sodom and Gomorrah, what, what sins do you think of? See, everyone, we think about sexual sin. But Ezekiel 16 talks about Sodom and says, here was the fault of Sodom, pride and excess food gluttony. That's the lust of the flesh. That's the first thing. We're like, the first thing, there's more. Uh, The second thing uh, that John lists in terms of what's in the world is the desires of the eyes. Now the desires of the eyes, for those of us taking notes, it's really to see the external without noticing the inherent and intrinsic value. Uh, and so that, that's problematic, right? So for example, like uh, pornography, that's, the, that's why pornography is so devastating. And, and Catapult, I know you're in here, okay? You know why it's so devastating? It's, it's because it's dehumanizing. It, it, it boils down people just to, just to bodies. And, and we don't see people created in the image of God who need Jesus. That's why pornography is so hurtful because it excludes and opposes the values of God in terms of how God has fashioned people in his own image. But now, uh, can we just be honest? Uh, Don't we do that in all sorts of different spheres as well? For example, uh, like sports, the Dodgers. But again, we're not gonna talk about that today. But um, have you noticed sometimes the way that even Christians talk about athletes, right? That guy sucks trade that guy. Now, now, (laughs) some players must be traded out of a team. (laughs) I I agree with that. Uh, I I agree. I agree. Um, No, so in terms of uh, if the goal of sports is to win, I, I understand that. But isn't it interesting how when we see athletes, we merely see the external in terms of they simply exist for this athletic kind of performance, just for our viewing pleasure. They are not people made in the image of God. Isn't that kind of oddly similar, even in terms of, at the heart of it, what pornography is? Or how about this? Like, think about um, uh, the way that we talk about our our employers or employees, right? Some of us, uh, you know, I hate my boss. Worst boss ever. That might be true. He may be the worst boss ever. She may be the worst boss ever. But do we see our boss made in the image of God? Do we see the intrinsic value that God has placed in that person by virtue of creating that person? Or how about, um, oh, th- this employee, like, they're terrible. I'm going to fire them. You may need to. That might be the right move. But, but in so doing, do we also see them as people? You know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting, uh, if you remember Charlottesville, 
the whole issue on racism. And when I saw the videos and the articles coming out, uh, I always take time to read some of the comments. And I shouldn't do that because it poisons my heart, right? It makes me depressed. Uh, and something that I noticed was that when, when people saw these videos of these people exercising racism, there was a huge outcry that racism is terrible because it dehumanizes other people. And I totally agree. But some of the very people who were crying out against racism, the very things they were saying about racists, you know what we should do to these people? It was just as dehumanizing. And so, you know, often we can talk about uh, the desire of the eyes as if it's something just terrible out there, but even the way that we talk about it here. The third thing that John uh, talks about and lists is the pride of life. The pride of life uh, is to really glory in one's possessions and positions. You know, uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, having a lot of money. There's nothing wrong with having a great house. Uh, We know that, right? There's nothing wrong with with those things. There isn't. There's nothing wrong with having a high status in society. It's fine. It just becomes problematic when we put so much of our identity and hope and glory into those things that God almost becomes an obstacle, right? The moment God starts feeling like a threat to our life, the moment God starts feeling like, okay, he's making me nervous now, that, that's, if we're trying to exclude God on account of our positions and possessions, that's when we're exercising the pride of life. And so that's why, you know, like the rich young ruler, he loved money too much. Because Jesus said, you can have me. Just sell, sell it. You can have me. And he couldn't. Jesus was too great a threat to his possessions. But, but now, um, if we can bring it down closer, I'm a parent so I speak out of a, my, my own wrestlings of a dad. You know, I have two beautiful children, sometimes scary. Uh, but can I just be honest? For all the rhetoric that I say about my children belong to the Lord, uh, you know, Elizabeth, uh, read a baby dedication here. For all the rhetoric that I say out loud, can we just be honest? Sometimes, isn't it kind of scary the thought of what God could do with our children? Sometimes. Like really, I'm going to give full control to God. I am going to be responsible, but God, ultimately your will went out. So sometimes, you know, I show this for service. I love my, I glory in them. They're, they're so much to me. But sometimes God makes me nervous. I'm not sure. Now, now for others of us who are younger, we're like, I don't have children. Okay, so let's talk about status a little bit. Because some of us, we may, we may not be working but, uh, you know, in, in our digital space, our, our Instagram uh, filters, our Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it is, uh, it's kind of a means to glory in ourselves, isn't it? Uh, I joked around that Snapchat, it's our personal TV stations. That's what it is. We're, we're, we're just showing our life. Have you noticed sometimes, like, you put something on Instagram, you're like, what? Eight likes in 20 minutes? Oh, what? That's it? Like, I'm going to take it down. It's embarrassing, Right? 40 likes, that's it? Oh my gosh. And, and so at that moment, God's opinion of us does not even matter. It's all about the opinions of those around us or what the digital space has to say about us. It's the pride of life. So, so yes, 
uh, the world could be cultural forms out there, but it is also when we enjoy and delight and pleasure in values that have been corrupted, that exclude God, when we embrace those things in here. And it can look very spiritual and clean and proper, and we could still be loving the world. You see, uh, John, he's so wise, and it's so insightful. You know why? Because you know when John, he wrote this letter to the churches of Asia Minor, some of these churches, like the members were very not wealthy. They were very poor, some of them. Uh, It was also a time of immense persecution, right? And so if if there's a group of believers where you have to write, don't love the world. I would not have picked the churches of Asia Minor, right? Like why? They're, they're, they're dying for their faith. They're so poor. But yet in the book of 1 John, there are 10 imperatives, meaning there are 10 commandments. Chronologically, the first imperative that shows up is don't love the world because it's not just something out there. It's something much closer. You know, uh, what's funny is that as I've been preparing for the sermon, what, what I generally do is uh, if I know what passage I'm preaching on, uh, like a month out, I'll just start reading it and just sit on it and stew on it. And, you know, when I, just totally being honest, when I, the first time I read this, I was like, oh, I preached, this is easy. This is for the people who drink too much. This is for the people who are sleeping around. It's the people who love their money. Got it. <laughs> You're like, whoa. Uh, but to be totally honest, as each week passed, I actually started feeling a little bit more uncomfortable. It actually became a little bit harder to preach this. And, uh, you know, there are certain sermons where I get really excited to preach about. And then there are other sermons where I'm like, what's even going inside here? Because what I've discovered is sometimes I indulge in the world a lot more than I care to admit. Could Could I ask you a question? How much do you love the world? You notice, I I didn't ask you if you love the world. I asked, how much do you love the world? How much do we indulge and esteem highly? You you know, um, where where do we go from here? Now, one of the, the, the solutions may be that, well, you need to pursue Jesus. And that is true. You must see him in his beauty. But what's fascinating is John doesn't do that. You know what John does? He completes the picture of the world. See, we actually must see the world for what it truly is. There are two things we must see. Here they are. The first thing is that we must see the world's lack of longevity in light of forever. We must see the world's lack of longevity in light of forever. See, in verse 17, John writes, uh, and the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So what he's saying is, look, this value system, as enjoyable as it may appear to be, it's temporary. It's fading away. It's going to pass. Don't invest in that. Eternity is here. That's forever. That's worth it. Uh, Let me, uh, maybe I can try to illustrate this. Do you guys remember dumb phones? Dumb phones are basically not smartphones. <laughs> it's the ones where you, you know, you have to, okay, sorry. Uh, I, I tried to find one and I realized I had to go to a museum. Uh, no, you know, in fact, here's how uh, 
unfamiliar some of us are with, with dumb phones. There's this college student that I asked, hey, do you have a dumb phone I could use for a sermon illustration? He's like, yeah, I got one, I'll bring it. You know what he brought? He brought a smartphone that doesn't work. <laughs> That's how removed. Come Lord Jesus. Um, no, um, I, I remember when the smartphone age broke into fallen humanity. Like I, I used to have a dumb phone. I remember when the first iPhone came out. And uh, there, it's really funny because someone I know who's kind of near and dear to my, uh, my life, he, he went to the Apple store because you know you can play with the products. He stood there for an hour playing with the iPhone. And you know what he kept saying? This is the future. This is the future. Yeah, creepy, right? <laughs> um, see, at that moment, what, what he was saying was, this is what's really going to matter. Like the dumb phone era, it's coming to an end. And in fact, uh, NBC in 2016, they produced this article, right, called, um, are, is dumb phone making a comeback? And when you read it, you know what uh, the find, findings are? No, they're not. <laughs> in fact, what they say is, in a decade, this was written in 2016, in a decade, all dumb phones, it, it'll cease. Just like how uh, the DVD has replaced the VCR. And I know some of us were like, what's a VCR? You know, is that a dinosaur? Um, it's coming to an end. So what would you think if, if, if I told you uh, I'm going to invest in a dumb phone company? What would you think of me? In fact, if, if there was a church social gathering and you saw me in a corner, really distracted, and, and you're like, what is he doing on his smartphone? And you got closer and, and I was holding my dumb phone really intensely and enjoying it, what would you think? You would think that's just, it's, 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 the, it's worthless. It's passing away. It's, it's a bad investment. Why, why, why would you do that? The world, in light of eternity, it's a bad investment. It's passing away. It's not worth it. But here's the problem. Even though we know that, it still feels good. That's the problem. We don't have a problem admitting that, but the problem is even if it's temporary, can I just still enjoy it? That's the problem, right? So here's the second thing we must see. We must see the the world's lack of generosity in light of the fathers. Uh, Going back to the the, the silly illustration about the phones, uh, can I just be honest? The first time I got my dumb phone, I thought it was amazing. I was like, I can call someone without a landline. I can text whoever I want. I can play Snake, Tetris, video game industry, look out, right? And then the first time I got my iPhone, I was like, wow, this dumb phone's totally dripped me. See, the world looks, it, it appears to give so much, doesn't it? The desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of, it, it looks really good on the outside, but see, there's actually a hollowness. There's an emptiness. It really doesn't give life. You know how I know this? Because of some of the most successful, rich people who get all of it, and there's the emptiness and the hollowness in their eyes. Uh, Comedian Jim Carrey, some of us, Jim Carrey was the Will Ferrell of the previous generation. Okay, for those of you who are like, Jim who? Here's what Jim Carrey said. Jim Carrey said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. There's a hollowness to the world. It appears to be generous, but in fact, it just takes. 
It ruins, it destroys. But now think about the father for a moment. Think about God the father. Is not the father generous? What does the father give? Himself. You you know, God the father gives you himself in, in his perfection, in his glory, in his love and compassion and kindness for you. And it's a, it's a compassion that's stubborn. He will not quit on you. He gave us his son. He gave us Jesus. And his son was crushed on the cross for your sins and mine. And, and, and Jesus takes our punishment. Jesus does that for us. And then when we, when we place our faith in him, God gives us, he places himself inside of us in the Holy Spirit. And then he brings us to his people, the church. And he says, these are the people you're gonna walk with through all the highs of life, through all the lows, all the difficult transitions, you're gonna be together. And I'm gonna carry you all the way into eternity and that's when the party's really gonna get started. Isn't the father generous? Isn't he so generous? You know, I've done, I don't know how many membership interviews I've done, right? And I love membership interviews because I get to hear people's stories. I get to see what God is doing in people's lives. Now, I love all the stories, but some of the stories that really warm my heart, you know what they are? They're the ones where Christians say, yeah, I grew up in the church, I met Jesus, and then I walked away from the church. And after walking away, I came back. Because you know what they're saying? They're saying, I tried it. I tried the world. And it wasn't enough. They didn't give me what I thought the world would give. And and so I love those interviews where where they're sitting, they're they're, they're saying, it's so great because God's love, it's it's amazing. They'll say things like, it's crazy. He never gives up. They're so grateful. We must see the world's lack of generosity in light of the Father's immense generosity. You know, like, God the Father is not trying to rob you of good. He's not trying to keep you from pleasure. He is, in fact, trying to save you from that which will truly rob you of joy, and that's the world. And that's why he invites you and I to himself again and again and again. Living hope, church, do not love the world. Do not love the world. It is passing away. It is not worth it. It is not a good investment. But living hope, church, let's love the Father because he is generous. And those who do his will will be with him forever, forever. He is worth it. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we we confess before you that our relationship to the world is something that maybe if we're truly honest, maybe really paying attention, we are much closer 
to the world than we could ever imagine. But God, what I also love is that it is in those times as well when you are knocking at the door and you are inviting us and calling us to yourself. And so create a sensitivity in our hearts to see truly just how empty the world is. And though we we may be a people in the world, help us not to love the world. Instead, help us to love you and demonstrate to to those who do love the world just how much they're really missing out. Help us in Jesus' name, amen.